And you're very welcome to Monday's Richie Allen Show. How are you? Thanks, as always, for finding me with you between now and 7 o'clock with two very interesting guests. Please drop me a comment to richieallen.co.uk. Uncensored, unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, Leah Thomas is an American swimmer, a transgender woman, and has been, uh, I suppose, the subject of much controversy in recent months. Now, recently, Leah has, um, well, basically dominated women's swimming. A lot of women are not happy. A lot of biological women are not, are not happy. And I've invited back to the programme Debbie Hayton. Debbie will join us to talk about that and more. Uh, Debbie is a physics teacher, trade unionist and journalist. Uh, she's a transsexual woman too. She's been writing about this and will join us to chat about it and the issues around it. There was also a very interesting piece in The Telegraph today, which I nabbed for my own website, about 5,500 children waiting for gender reassignment treatment on the NHS. We'll talk to Debbie about that as well. Before that, Michael Rivero of WhatReallyHappened.com, old pal, terrific broadcaster and writer. Michael will join us to run down the days and the weekend just gone, the biggest stories. Michael Rivero. And Debbie Hayton, my guest today, and I've already said it, but it bears repeating. Do drop me a line through richieallen.co.uk. Isn't it beautiful in the northwest of the UK? Glorious weather we are enjoying. The weather person is telling us that by the middle of the week it might very well be around 20 degrees. I mean, that's just a dizzy stuff, that. This coming Saturday night, Sunday morning, uh, the clocks here in the UK, they go forward, so they do. And we're on summertime then, British summertime. The Americans are already there. Daylight saving time, or whatever it is. Now, Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe has said it should never have taken so long for her to be released. The UK government should never have taken so long, she said at a press conference in Westminster today. She said what's happened now should have happened six years ago. I shouldn't have been in prison for that long. She's a British-Iranian dual citizen, born in Tehran. So she was, came over to the UK to study and to work eventually and met her husband Richard here. Uh, She was speaking today for the first time since her dramatic return to the UK. Uh, The release came after the UK government paid a £400 million debt to Iran, which dated back to the 1970s. Although both the Tehran authorities, the the Tehranian, the Iranian government and the UK government saying that the two issues are not linked. Yeah, right. Anyway, here's a little snippet of Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe speaking from that Westminster press conference today. I believe that the meaning of freedom is never going to be complete until such time that um, all of us who are unjustly um, you know, detained in Iran are reunited <coughs> with our families, to begin with Murad, but also the other dual nationals, you know, members of the... Um, uh, uh, 
like religious groups or prisoners of conscience who are, I mean, we do realize that if I have been in prison for six years, there are so many other people we don't know their names who have been, you know, suffering in prison in Iran. So I, I think the justice in Iran does not have any meaning because in worst case scenario, you are, you know, being given um, um, the, the unfair trial. If you're lucky, then you'll be picked up by by a kind of semi-fair judge, but in most cases, you're not being lucky. Um, the journey back home was tough. I grant what Richard said to thank the uh, Foreign Secretary. I have, I do not really agree with him on that level. Uh, and I'm, I'm gonna tell you that because I have seen five Foreign Secretaries changed over the course of six years. That is unprecedented given the politics of the UK. I love you, Richard respect whatever you believe. But I was told many, many times that, oh, we're gonna get you home. That never happened. So there was a time that I felt like, do you know what, I'm not, no, I'm not even gonna trust you because I've been told many, many times that I'm gonna be taken home, but that never happened. I mean, how many foreign secretaries does it take for someone to come out? Five. It should have been one of them eventually. So now here we are. What's happened now should have happened six years ago. Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe today. Husband Richard Ratcliffe was fairly quiet throughout. I don't know if you were watching it like I was. You can only imagine what he was thinking as he sat there quietly staring into space. How long should I leave it before I broach the subject of sex? Good old fashioned relations. Should I wait for Nazanin to bring it up? I thought she'd jump me after she disembarked the plane at RAF Bryce Norton last week, but then she insisted that her young daughter share the bed with us. How long should I leave it? I'm hornier than Tiger Woods. I'm hornier than a lesbian in a fishmonger's over here. Answers to richieallen.co.uk. How long should Richard Ratcliffe leave it before asking his wife, listen, do you fancy a quick one upstairs while Gabrielle is watching Barney? What do you think? Man's got to do what a man's got to do. And, and Nazanin is well fit, by the way. It's so liberating to produce, edit and present yourself on your very own stream. It's six and a half minutes past the hour. That's the sort of thing that tabloids would have engaged in years ago, that sort of speculation. Presuming, of course, that Richard has kept his hands to himself for the, uh, for the better part of the last six years. Presuming. That's presuming a lot, maybe. How do I know? Anyway, let's talk about Louis. Let's talk about Louis. This, this is tragic and it's funny and it's tragic as well. A guy called Louis McKechnie was one of the protesters who tied themselves to goalposts at Premier League football matches in recent times and over the last uh, weekend, this weekend just gone. And um, yeah, they're, they're called, what are they called? Just Stop Oil, is it? Or something like that they're called. They're protesters, they're a bit like Extinction Rebellion, they're a bit mad, to put it mildly. Um, so some of them briefly disrupted some football matches by tying themselves to the goalposts. I've written about this before, not well, obviously, but I've spoken about it. I, I believe that a lot of these people are genuinely not well. Not said to embarrass or insult anyone. I've had a bit of experience over the years with religious mania. An old pal from Spain, his first wife died, related to 
religious mania, she took her own life. And I knew a lady who lived near me when I was very, very much younger, who suffered a bit from the old religious mania. And I see that in many of these people, particularly when they're on television and radio. They're convinced that climate change is killing people. But but today, they've petitioned governments to list climate change as the cause of death when people are killed by floods, for example, or caught up in a storm. Not out to hurt anyone, but I believe these people are not well at all. They've been terrorised into thinking that we're in the end times and that they must take the most self-flagellating measures, the most drastic measures. They must turn the planet into a place that's almost unbearable to live in in order to save it. And they don't understand that their proposals will see off more people than the weather ever has done or ever will do. That's how I see it. This is just my opinion. And not, you know, I wrote about this today for the first, not for the first time. My ears kind of pricked up when I heard someone say, it isn't ethical to have children. Let's just have a little bit of a listen to this. It's a guy called Louis McKechnie from a protest group that wants to end oil and gas exploration and, and usage and everything else, speaking with Talk Radio's Julia Hartley Brewer. I think you will hear Brewer first, and then we'll hear from the young man, the young protester. I'm all in favour, Louis, of us moving towards cleaner energy, as long as it is affordable and reliable and secure. The reality is there is no one sensible working anywhere in the energy market who thinks that we are going to tomorrow or even in the next 10 years move entirely to renewables we don't have the ability to um uh, actually we don't even we can't even manufacture the battery power that we would need to try and retain a lot of the energy from solar power and wind power that's not possible right now i hope one day it will be let's put billions into developing that that would be a great idea julia but until how that much point, do they pay you Louis, to betray your children's future Louis, what's your price well how much did they pay you to betray your children's future said louis well, Julia's not going to take that line down, is she? Louis, have you just accused me of being dishonest and corrupt? Well, she's not deaf anyway. Be honest. Precisely, yes. You have. You're you, meant to reset, you, represent the British people. I'm not meant to represent anyone but out. myself, Louis. How- Actually, that's not quite true either. You're meant to represent your listeners, particularly those listeners who don't see the world as you see it. You're supposed to represent them most of the time you're on air anyway. You're representing the interests of the fossil fuel companies and the upper class. The upper class? Oh, I'm a member of the upper class now. How nice. That'll come as news to my dad. The thinking man's bit of crumpet. You can't eat money, Julia. Oh, goodness. Louis, this... Even Gary Lineker. He I'm... saw our protest. Oh, well, if and he Gary said Lineker... of this young man's methods <laughs> well, or not, Well, if Gary Lineker right. approved, then it His must be His future is perilous, desperate Louis, times and all that. Louis, when your argument is... It's funny that, isn't it? I had to check that to, to see if it was true. But yeah, Gary Lineker, footballer, one-time footballer anyway, these days does football shows for the BBC match of the day and, and what's not and apparently occasionally advertising Walker's crisps but Lineker has taken up the the mantle of supporting people like this young man saying that their futures are at stake and they're right even if you don't agree with their methodology Gary Lineker okay, Who will you listen to if not the scientists You won't listen to Gary Lineker, who will you listen to? If not the celebrities I to, I come, if not I'm, the UN well, Louis, when your argument is... Who to is get... the voice in your ear right now? 
the voice in my ear is me actually investigating to this and actually looking at the realities on the ground. When Have the, you read the most recent IPCC reports? I've, I've, I've read the summary and I'm guessing that's, uh, that's as much as you've read as well. Louis. Very good. I've read the summary. I guess that's all you've read as well. Got to give a lot of credit to Julia Hartley Brewer on a human level. You will probably have a lot against her. You'll have a lot to say about her because of her station's propaganda around Ukraine, the the Ukrainian situation, the war in Ukraine. Okay, I get that. I know where Julia Hartley Brewer comes from, but um, she's pretty good here. If you can imagine Piers Morgan or someone or James Whale, they'd be out to humiliate the man, score points off him, shout him down and ultimately hang up on him. But she's giving a masterclass in how to conduct an interview like this, to her credit. When your entire argument is based on insulting the person asking you questions, I'm not clearly sure that you've got a strong argument. This is like sixth form college debating. You're supposed to be a student, but I thought at university, inability to actually debate on the facts. As I was trying to point out, there is nobody who is half sane or half knowledgeable in this field who thinks that we are going to be able to rely on renewables entirely or even mostly for the next decade or at least, I mean, quite a few decades. We know that the West and indeed the developing world will be relying on fossil fuels. We want to have cleaner fossil fuels and we want to uh, be getting them out more cheaply and securely. Why are you you're signing your reality? daughter's death sentence? You're a traitor to the British people. You're a traitor to your daughter. And I'm murdering... Traitor to the British people and a traitor to your daughter. This guy believes this. He's not putting it on. Oil destroys everything. Oil destroys civil rights. Oil destroys the economy. Oil destroys... It destroys linen, doesn't it? It destroys a good pair of jeans. We know that for a fact. Don't get oil on any item of clothing. I have yet to meet the detergent that gets rid of an oil stain. If if I'm wrong, let me know through richieallen.co.uk. The air the ground, mm. our mm. very lives. Yeah. Oil, you, will choke, oil will choke the future from your child in front of you. And in 20 it, years, when she asks you, what did you do to stop this? Yeah, your answer will be, I was paid not to. I was paid not to. Um, no one has ever told me what views to have. I think you can safely say, actually, my bosses would often prefer some of the views I have not to be given. I'm very happy to give opinions that are massively unpopular, even with my listeners, because they always know I tell them what I actually think. I find your attitude and what you've claimed and you're, uh, to be incredibly insulting and frankly demeaning because you know, I say, if you can't, I'm not I'm not arguing that you're being paid by someone to say this. I'm not arguing that you because don't. Because I'm not being paid, but you no. are. What's no, but the price? reality is you are getting what paid. Your in, price, you'll Julia? be getting paid in, my price is my price is that, my price for being on this show, my price is that I'm allowed to say what I think. No. Julia, and? Is it possible that someone could have a different opinion from you and not be corrupt and evil? Is that- You know the amount of times I've asked that question to people who listen to the independent media? I've asked the same question a thousand times. Is it possible for someone to have a different opinion than yours and not be a shill that they might actually believe what it is they are saying? You know, you know, I've had this out for years and years with indie media consumers. Who, who absolutely lose it when when one of their heroes expresses an opinion they don't agree with. You must be a shill. No, I, I just disagree with you. I might be wrong, of course, but I see it a bit differently than you do. Is that possible? You're, or does everyone have to agree to with you, opinion, Louis? But when your I'm entitled to my opinion, but you'll abuse me and say I'm corrupt. In the planet, it's suicidal. That's, You're it's, dooming... 
the future right. of all life on this earth. In 20... Assuming the future of all life on this earth. He believes this stuff. It's 2022. In 2050, when most of our football pitches are not underwater, when the world is still carrying on and we're still very much reliant on fossil fuels, will you come back on this show when you've got a job and a mortgage and your own children, which who miraculously will also not have died? Um, and will you say, sorry, Julia, I got it wrong? Julia will be in a care home by then, so it's not going to happen. But what did he say? Absolutely, I will. But if we don't just stop oil, we're not going to get to that future. If we don't just yeah. stop oil, my generation isn't going to have a future. Oh, bless. Are you going to have children or do you not want to have them because you think the world's ending? I don't feel like I can ethically have children at this point because can of I what the say, scientists are saying. I, I, the top scientists... Thank God for the gene pool, Louis. Thank God for the gene pool. Yeah, that was a bit cheeky at the end, but we'll give her that. She kind of in, she kind of earned it. 17 minutes past five. I do believe, and I hope I will be proven to be wrong, because I am often wrong, but listening to the... This guy was hysterical but he was remaining fairly calm. I've heard people like him in the last couple of years, a little bit more hysteria, a little bit more wound up, and they're genuine. And my fear is, and I hope I'm wrong, that violence is not too far away. They really believe this, that people who don't go along with them and accept their apocalyptic visions or imaginations, or excuse me, the the apocalyptic scenarios they've dreamt up. Th- they believe that those of us who think it's nonsense are the enemy. And at some stage, I believe they'll go beyond throwing paint at people. They'll go beyond letting down the air or letting the air out of people's tyres. They'll go beyond it. And that's something to keep in mind. I hope I am wrong. It's 18 minutes past five. It's Monday's Richie Allen Show. As always, it's live from BBG Towers, the only man-made obstacle in Salford visible from the moon. According to some of those guys who went to the moon. They're going back. You see that? You see the NASA rocket, the big gigantic rocket? By the way, when I say they're going back, I'm triggering you deliberately. (laughs) Because I suspect that you, like me, might be pretty doubtful they ever went there in the first place. But anyway, shall we have a bit of money? Every Monday we do this. I've got to get a jingle done up. I'll get a jingle done. I'll make one myself. I'll make one myself and save money. It's time for a bit of James O'Brien LBC Radio. Deliciously megalomaniacal. 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 Uh, Blissfully and completely without any sense of self-awareness. No sense of self-danger, which is, which is wonderful. Out Brent's David Brent, a wonderful character, O'Brien, and yet he's genuine, he's real. So today, Monday, so much he could have gotten into in his monologue, which doesn't, isn't a patch on the Richie Allen Show monologue, obviously, he says, with a big old head on him. Uh, I'm jesting. Uh, it's all subjective, of course. So what did he get into in the monologue today? Did he get into Nazanin, Zagari, Ratcliffe, and whether or not Richard Ratcliffe has had sex yet? Did he get into Ukraine, the cost of living, trans sports, climate change? No, he didn't. What did James O'Brien tell his listeners? Well, he thought you should hear about a review 
a review that he received from broadcaster Clive James many, 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 many moons ago. I, I was sure this was parody. One of the first ever reviews I got as a broadcaster was by the legend that is Clive James. <laughs> it, it, I think it was the first review I ever got, and it may, it may still rank among the best, actually. And it, I, I, a pink-shirted walking... I, 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 I'm trying to remember the word that he used. I think it was... Uh, no. He's telling his listeners now that he's trying to remember the words used by broadcast legend Clive James in a review that James did of O'Brien 20 years ago. No context is offered here. Oh, to describe my accent. Ah, to describe his accent. It said something like, it sounds like never mind the buzz... No, it looks like never mind the buzzcocks, but sounds like Plato's Symposium. I'm not arrogant. It's, it's, it's not re relevant at all that I've got this committed to memory 20 years later. Do you know What the fuck? You know, it, was a, it was a rare television programme that I presented with my wife. <laughs> he presented TV with his wife. Uh, with, with Mrs O'Brien. Richard and Judy. Uh, uh, Eat your heart out. Uh, it was actually rather good, but Mrs O'Brien... It was rather good, says James, modestly. O'Brien's ambitions didn't lean towards becoming the new Richard and Judy, so... <laughs> What was that last bit? Was it Mrs. O'Brien's fault you didn't knock Richard and Judy off their perch? It was a, it was a rare television programme that I presented with my wife, uh, with, with Mrs. O'Brien. Uh, it was actually rather good, but Mrs. O'Brien's ambitions didn't lean towards becoming the new Richard and Judy, so, <laughs> so that, that got shelved fairly early on, probably for the benefit of all of us. What a card. Any more? And, um... And, and, and I know he used a, a word to describe my accent. I'll He's still talking about Clive James' review of him 20 years ago. Dig it out. It might have been esturine, but I don't think it was esturine. Cause no, I, it was nauseating, I would imagine. Costive. 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 It was costive. It was costive. Clive James referred to James O'Brien as costive 20 years ago. Whew, still got it. Thank God for that. Cost still got it. Costive tones. And I had to look it up. What he had to look up costive. Did he? What does costive mean? Do you know what costive means, Keith? No. Keith, his producer just had to be called Keith, didn't he? I didn't either. So I looked it up and it, I think it relates to costermonger, the kind of market trader. Roll up, roll up. No, it doesn't, you inbred, illiterate muppet. It doesn't. Costive actually is an adjective and it means constipated. Ironically, or it can mean slow or reluctant in speech or action. I think the review, O'Brien has a rosy-minded view, a, a rosy-minded memory of a review given by Clive James 20 years ago. O'Brien is so beyond David Brent that he actually believes that Clive James gave him a good review when Clive James in fact called him either constipated or slow or reluctant in speech or action, because that is what costive means. And as an English graduate, dear listener, I didn't have to look it up. And, um, and, and, and I know he used a, a word to describe my accent. I'll dig it out. It might have been esturine, but I don't think it was esturine. Because co co Costive, costive. Whew, still got it. Thank God for that. Costive tones. And I had to look it up. What does yeah, he looked it up anyway. Carry on. I don't know how my accent has evolved over the years. I was very posh at about 13. 
And this is national radio now. And then in common with a lot of other public school educated people who came out of public school in the early 90s, we all pretended we weren't posh. Guy Ritchie became our patron saint. You remember the whole Mockney thing? That, that where everyone walked around talking like they were the lost Mitchell brother, despite the fact that they had more plums in their mouth than the average member of the Reese Mogg clan. What? It was a curious little period in British social history, and I, I, was, I was there for it. I was there for it. I, I, I spent, he was there. He was there. He wants you to know that he was there. Spent, I've told you this a million times, but I, I worked briefly, very briefly, like a couple of weeks, on a building site in South Yorkshire. And I, <laughs> and I swear, my accent during that fortnight would have been worthy of a socio, sociological thesis. Quite what the hell. So I was desperate not to sound posh. But I wasn't desperate enough to try to sound Yorkshire. He was desperate not to sound posh, but not so desperate that he would try to sound South Yorkshire. Why? There's no way that a kid who, who grew up in the Midlands and went to public school is going to be able to successfully pull off a South Yorkshire accent. It's quite a tricky accent. Anyway, South Yorkshire. It's not sort of e-bagum. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. A, a, a bit a bit rounder in the mouth. It's not e-bagum. It's a bit more nuanced than that. It's a little bit rounder in the mouth. Hey, listen, you're with the Richie Allen Show, live from Salford, with me, your BBG, Richie Allen, with you till seven. The wonderful Michael Rivero joins us live in about three and a half minutes. How bizarre from OMC on the Richie Allen Show, 28 minutes past the hour. Michael Rivero is standing by. Thank heavens for that. Mondays can be funny like that, you know? Things going wrong. Not really, to be honest, not really. Let me read one or two quick messages before we move on, because I did invite them. Scottish John says, how you doing, Scottish John? E by gum, we had some fun shooting peas up O'Brien's bum. <laughs> and Craig says, very good, Craig. O'Brien, John and Craig, O'Brien has to be a bit rounder in the mouth to perform his fluffer duties. I like that one. Kieran says, there's more than just constipated to the word cost of Richie. I did say that, Kieran. Were you listening to me? I gave the standard dictionary definitions, both constipation and slow or reluctant in speech. Listen up, man, before you come before you come at me. I'll sound thin-skinned if I don't behave myself. Thanks, Kieran. Alex says, God, J-O-B is just such a prick. Absolutely subtle stuff from Alex there. William says, concerning Louis on Julia Hartley Brewer. He's not sure if it is mental illness. William says, I think these people are brainwashed and don't know any better. Some of them will probably see sense in good time, but the rest will go wherever the programming sees fit. And you're probably right, Richie, in thinking it will become more and more fanatical. Well, look, look, there's truth in what you're saying there, William. I, I, I think you're right, they're brainwashed, but that brainwashing... For me, this is just my opinion, it does then kind of tend towards mania. And that's why I say illness, not to hurt or to embarrass anyone. Nothing funny about being psychologically unwell, mentally unwell. We've all suffered, at one time or another over the years, we've all been down and fed up. And at some time or another, we've been frightened of things or nervous, you know, and it can go two or three steps further than that, I think. Angela cannot bear to hear J-O-B swallowing. <laughs> Me neither. But he gives us a few laughs, Angela. He's taken over from our, our friend Kay Burley. Kay's gone very sensible, you know. 
these days. Kay's gone very, very, very sensible. Let's get my great pal, Michael Rivero, on the line. You should be, I know you probably are, but you should be in constant touch with whatreallyhappened.com. It's a fantastic website, and as far as I know, it's one of the longest established uh, independent news websites on the net. Michael is a terrific broadcaster, writer, and um, as I always mention, because I love it, it's a great fact, uh, he spent his days in Hollywood doing very special work on effects and stuff like that. Welcome back, Michael Rivero. Well, thank you for having me. Now, I've been speaking with you since 2010, and I'm pretty sure as big a name as you are, as well known as you are, once in a blue moon, someone would have sent you an email saying, Michael, I was listening to the Richie Allen show the other day and he gave you a lovely mention. You would have gotten an occasional email like that because I often mention you. Why the preamble? Uh, yeah, I, I do get emails, uh, you know, saying I heard you on Richie Allen and, uh, <clears throat> you know, that you do say very, very kind things. I do. Uh, about me, um, you know, the check is in the mail. So we'll Thank you, Mike. It's not even the check. What I want to know is that the preamble is for this reason and this reason only. We've known yeah. each other for 12 years. When yes. are you going to trust me not to screw up the timing of the programme? When are you going to... <laughs> do you know, I'll tell the listeners, some years ago, a couple of times very close together, in close proximity, I screwed up the time difference and screwed up Mike coming on the programme. I've not done it since... But he won't let it go. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to say anything. I mean, we got this show running on time. We're on time, you know, we're we here. lined up perfectly. <laughs> we're here. You're, you're chastising me for something I haven't done yet. No, I, that, fair enough. I, I'll wait. It's pre-crime, pre-cog. I've got three pre-cogs <laughs> in a swimming pool downstairs, Mike. Um, okay. Good to have you back, as always. There's so much we, we can get into. Um, what What is your understanding of what is happening militarily in Ukraine at the moment? Well, it's uh, obviously a complex issue. Wars uh, <clears throat> never start for just one reason. There's a lot of overlapping agendas. Uh, what we're seeing happening today in Ukraine uh, uh, is the inevitable result of the U.S.-backed coup d'etat back in 2014 when Victoria Nuland led the effort uh, to oust the democratically elected government of Yanukovych, and they installed Poroshenko uh, to basically uh, grab Ukraine, which had been leaning toward Russia, and drag it back to the European Union. And even back then, experts were saying this was a reckless thing to do. It was going to put us on a path to war with Russia. And, uh, of course, Crimea held a referendum to secede from Ukraine because it wasn't their government anymore. Uh, they then joined uh, the Russian republics. You had the eastern uh, Donbass region, the uh, Lugansk People's Republic, the Donetsk People's Republic, that are basically trying to uh, win a war for independence. Uh, they've been uh, shelled for eight years by the government in Kiev and finally just reached a, a breaking point where uh, Russia went on in and said... Uh, it's time for this to stop. And yet, I don't understand why, if, if Luhansk and Donbass were so important, I, I still can't get my head around this, Michael, why didn't Putin decide to secure those areas? Why did he begin to shell cities then? Because this is my opinion, and you won't be surprised to hear it, because we've um, had these discussions many times over the years. The minute you start shelling... Um, cities are sending tanks into cities. 
you're killing innocent people and for me all bets are off. Any moral high ground you might have had is gone. I agree with you and to be very honest, <clears throat> pardon me, when we first started seeing uh, military action coming from Russia, uh, I honestly thought they would stop at the border of the Donbass and simply said, okay, here is, uh, you know, the new border. Uh, but for uh, some reason, you know, P Putin does not want Ukraine to join NATO because that will put NATO nuclear missiles within a very short striking distance of Moscow. Yeah. And they remember how close the Nazis got during big mistake number two. They don't want to repeat that. Fair enough, right? And yep. if I was a Russian citizen, I might say to my president, OK, I understand your nervousness about Ukraine joining NATO. But if I was a more sceptical Russian citizen, I might say to Vladimir Putin, what difference does it make? We're surrounded anyway, number one. And number two, you've got a 9,000 mile per hour hypersonic missile that if you get even a sniff of anything incoming, you can wipe out Washington in about 15 minutes. Well, you know, you have to have enough time to evaluate the fact that you're under attack and then go for the launch. And that's where that initial strike time becomes very important. Now, you probably um, remember the movie Dr. Strangelove yeah. uh, starring Peter Sellers. It uh, was directed by uh, Stanley Kubrick. And uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, denouement of the entire movie was that the Soviet Union had put together a fully automated system where if there, there was a nuclear attack on their soil, uh, it would automatically respond. And about two months ago, there was an article in a military journal saying uh, that Russia had actually implemented such a system wow. uh, that can put into a, an automatic mode. And uh, if their country is attacked with nuclear weapons, uh, whatever is left over after that first strike will get fired off in various directions. We're, there is no question we are at an extraordinarily dangerous moment in history. Amazing you brought up that, um, you know, almost predictive programming from Dr. Strangelove. I did come across that on your website, whatreallyhappened.com. Check it out, folks. Bookmark it if you haven't already. If, depending on who you believe, the Ukrainian government or the United States government, there's been a lot of Russian casualties, right? The Ukrainians say it's a lot more. The US say it's not as many, but it's still a lot. And the Russian military advance appears to have stalled somewhat, although there's, um, there's a big naval build-up. We're seeing a big naval build-up at the moment. Where do, you yes. think, where do you think that will lead, Michael? Do you imagine that the Russian government will try and take Kiev? Well, you know, first of all, truth is the first casualty of war, and uh, <clears throat> pretty much everybody is going to be lying. I think the reason that the Russian advance is not that fast is that Putin really is trying to avoid civilian casualties because he knows how bad that's going to look to the rest of the world. And uh, so, uh, you know, they're not trying to conquer all of Ukraine they're going for the major lines of communication, shipping routes, shipping ports, uh, the airports, things like that. And uh, in that context, they really uh, they they they've made tremendous progress there. Uh, the big issue, of course, is I don't think Putin anticipated uh, all these other countries sending weapons and uh, well, they call them volunteers, but they're actually mercenaries uh, into the fight. 
And uh, you're, you're right about those hypersonic missiles. Uh, apparently, there was a strike on a, 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 a weapons depot, and something like $400 million worth of weapons went up in a single blow. That's right. I've got to ask you this before we talk a little bit about news closer to home for you. What about the European Union? You and I have spent many years discussing and trying to explain you know, the dangers of big trading blocks like the European Union and what they were really in, meant to do. You've done some great work on, you know, how the European Union indebted countries through the yes. European Central Bank so that they could pillage those countries. And um, great stuff. Now, on the European Union, we don't hear much of it anymore, but the European Union has its own military ambitions, doesn't it, Michael? And they're pretty serious. And you wonder where... The Russian thinking is on this. So, okay, you're worried about NATO, you're worried about Ukraine, but maybe the Russians should be equally as worried or more worried about plans for for an EU army. What do you think? Yeah, I'm sure that Russia is already paying attention to it. Now, of course, many of the EU nations are also members of NATO. They all have their own uh, independent military <clears throat> through NATO, they can coordinate and combine them. But there has been talk lately uh, of having a single European Union army. We understand, of course, the ultimate goal of Brussels is to basically get rid of the uh, borders between European countries like Italy and France and so forth uh, and turn it into one super uh, nation, the way the United States which began as a collection of separate sovereign states, is now viewed functionally as just one country. And Michael, do you think that, you summed up the European Union as far as I understand it, thanks for that, do you believe that there are meant to be four or five of these um, unions around the world and then ultimately for there to be just one? I'm asking that because we've um, paid quite a bit of attention recently to the World Health Organization attempting to take control over you know, global health policy in a future pandemic, every country would have to follow the World Health Organization. It sounds very much like global governance to me. So is it your opinion that the European Union was always about, and other, you know, pacts like TPP and and all of those were ultimately about one global system of governance? Yeah, ultimately that, you know, the, the globalists have been talking about the new world order, the global government for a very, very long time. And they see the formation of these collections of smaller nations as a stepping stone um, uh, to get there. You have the European Union, you have the North American Union, um, and they're basically trying to just get people used to the idea of these gigantic uh, supranation assemblages and uh, eventually just sort of bring them all together under uh, one rulership, as it were. Michael Rivero is our guest, folks. We've got Michael for another 10 minutes, maybe 12 minutes. Always great to have Michael on. WhatReallyHappened.com is his excellent website. I was fascinated, Michael, by this big, you know, this row about mask wearing in universities in in your vast country and how it kind of swings, uh, you know, one way and then another. I was following uh, the diaries of a guy called Will, I'll pronounce, I'll pronounce his name incorrectly now, Will Weissoglad or, or Weissoglad. He's the senior in Illinois who posted diaries about how he was repeatedly basically sent home from school because he wouldn't wear masks. And then a judge in Illinois ruled that schools couldn't require masks. But, but that's good. But now I'm, I'm learning that there are a number of students actually fighting to keep mask requirements 
um, in schools to keep it a requirement to wear masks in schools, um, led by people uh, going to school in Nevada. What's going on? For some of these people, it's almost like um, they can't have enough vaccines. They can't have COVID enough times. It's like, I've had five vaccines, Michael. I've had COVID three times, but I still want to wear masks. What's going on in your country with masks in schools? Well, I think it's part of a general phenomenon where people get caught up in a cause uh, without really thinking it all the way through. And uh, the the fact of the matter is uh, the masks do not really uh, help protect you from COVID. In fact, uh, uh, on the box of the N95 masks, we got to start uh, out this whole thing. It actually says right on there, will not protect against viruses. And to give you an idea uh, of just, uh, especially these cloth masks, how totally useless they are. If you take 700 of those COVID virus particles and put them in a line, they will equal the width of one of your hairs on your head. That's how small it is. So wearing these masks to try and stop COVID, it's like trying to stop mosquitoes with a chain link fence. Now, but but I've I've heard from from scientists, and I I don't believe they are in the pay of any nefarious groups. I've heard from scientists who say, look, they do give you some protection. Maybe not the cloth masks, but there are masks that you can wear that do give you some protection and would minimise your risk, even by, you know, even if you think it's negligible, there are masks that do work. Have we gotten, have we wasted a lot of time arguing over masks? Uh, Whether they work or not? We've wasted a lot of time because, uh, you know, it's coming out more and more that the COVID was never that serious. It was about as bad as the seasonal flu, but a lot of people made a lot of money off of this, you know, with the mandatory vaccines. The vaccine companies just piled it, you know, we're talking $100 billion in profits uh, from um, this uh, scam. And not the first time. I mean, back in uh, 1976, uh, there was the uh, so called swine flu epidemic. And they mandated vaccinations for all America, and the vaccine company was making tons of money, and Gerald Ford got his shot on TV. And then they had to cancel the program when it turned out the vaccine was killing more people than the swine flu was. And over in uh, Sweden, I think it is, they just had a symbolic uh, mass funeral for children because the numbers uh, over there are also showing the vaccines are far more dangerous than the illness itself. Yeah, there's no doubt but about it that. it makes a lot of money. It, it makes a lot of money. Lots of, lots of money. And I read on your website last week or the week before that the amount of money spent by your government, not by the actual pharmaceutical companies, but by the government with the media to, you know, to scare people into compliance at the very outset of the of the of the scam demic, let's call it. That was and it, it was extraordinary that the, the you know the sort of money we were talking about and and people, I wish that people would look more closely at that and and ask themselves if you're a news organisation and a government is paying you extraordinary amounts of money to repeat its propaganda. Well, your news programs are hardly likely to question any of that propaganda, right, Mike? They absolutely are, and uh, people as consumers of the media uh, need to be far more skeptical 
uh, and realize that the news media is under absolutely no legal obligation to be honest and truthful with the public. They're simply putting on out there whatever their advertisers and the government wants put on out there. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, I think a good example, this just happened this last week. Uh, do you remember Hunter Biden's laptop? I do indeed remind this. This, this was a big issue, of course, in the election. Wasn't yeah, it? this was yeah. a huge uh, issue. Uh, Hunter Biden uh, actually had two laptops. One he lost to some uh, Russian gamblers, and he had a second laptop, which he had to take into a repair shop. And the guy at the repair shop looked on the laptop when he got it working and saw some very unsavory things and basically reported it to the authorities. And uh, you had uh, the corporate media reassuring Americans that the laptop was a Russian hoax. It's Russian disinformation. Russia wants to help Donald Trump. And so they're going to lie about Joe Biden. And it went on that way. They had something like 50 uh, directors of various national uh, intelligence agencies all signing a letter saying, no, this this isn't real. It's a Russian hoax. And then last week, the New York Times comes on out and just very casually admits, yeah, the laptop is real. It's yeah. genuine. And, uh, you know, we verified that all the emails and uh, photos on it really are of Hunter Biden. And it, it, it's a reminder. Media does lie to you. They lie to you to sell you vaccines. They lie to you to sell you candidates. They're lying to you to sell a war. And, uh, you you know, caveat emptor, you've got to be very, very critical, skeptical of what the news media is telling you. Unfortunately, we're all raised to think that media will be honest and truthful. It's an essential part of our uh, culture. We get that in school about how, you know, we should listen to and believe these talking heads on TV. And we shouldn't because uh, they, they are paid to lie to us. When um, speaking, it's interesting you bring that up because a number of people, a couple of people, including Isabel, and I've also had an email from Derek, they ask about Ukraine and what, if anything, the United States could have done to prevent that escalating at the very beginning. And that throws up a couple of extra questions as well. You know, questions about Donald Trump's relationship with Vladimir Putin. And of course, Trump is boasting, has been boasting, that it wouldn't have happened if he'd been in the White House. I guess Biden was unlikely or incapable of doing anything to prevent the escalation. Is that how you might see it? And, and what about Trump's claims? Uh, well, you know, Trump is campaigning because he's going to run in 2024. And unfortunately, uh, you know, Biden uh, uh, is showing weakness. He's flip-flopping, and Putin's taking advantage of it. But uh, what the United States could have done to prevent the current crisis was not mess around with Ukraine back in 2014. And this is a pattern that we see over and over again, whether it's Ukraine uh, or Iraq or Syria uh, or Afghanistan, where the United States will go on in, overthrow the government, put in a new government sympathetic to Western interests and Western businesses, loot and plunder the people of that country until finally uh, we see uh, the, the people rise up against the U.S.-installed government as we saw in Iran in 1979. Final question for today, Michael. Thanks for your time. I know you've got your own show to prepare, the excellent What Really Happened radio show. Go to whatreallyhappened.com, folks, for details on how to listen to it. It's uh, terrifically produced and very well presented. Thanks, Michael. On on China, China allegedly, you know, being prepared again. If you believe that the Western press, and I, I, I'm 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 with you 100. percent You can't 
trust very much of it, no matter where it comes from. But this idea that China might give Putin a bit of a leg up in terms of weaponry um, if he's, you know, stuck, what, what might that lead to? I mean, I, I, I don't mm-hmm. believe n- nuclear weapons will be deployed, not because I'm naive, I just don't believe they will. I believe if there is to be some sort of ex- es- escalation, and if it does draw China and Russia in, it might be lots of proxy wars. How do you see it? Well, you know, uh, everybody loves proxy wars because, uh, you know, your own people and your own property don't yeah. get destroyed. Uh, but we know the United States has been uh, uh, putting pressure on China regarding Taiwan. We have a lot of military forces over in that part. Uh, Australia is now coming on board. Uh, there are our Marines stationed in the Northern Territories. Uh, and I, I really do think we're aiming at a true world war where it'll be uh, the United States and its allies against Russia and China together. I'm not sure that we can win that, but inevitably on a war that large, the first side that decides they cannot win that war conventionally, they're going to turn those little brass keys in the missile silos and it's going to be a bad day for anybody not wearing two million sunblock. Two million sunblock. There's a horrible video on YouTube done by some academics. They explain what would happen to a city if it was hit by a nuclear warhead. If you're of a weak disposition, dear listener, I don't recommend you look at it. But, um, Mike, I hope you're wrong. I know you hope you're wrong. Thanks for coming back today. Best to Claire. Great radio show, mate. Love it. WhatReallyHappened.com. And I'll give you a shout sometime in April. Thanks, Michael. All right, I'll be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, The great Michael Rivero live on Monday's Richie Allen radio show, WhatReallyHappened.com. It's eight minutes to the top of the hour. Good to be with you. Sue says, Richie, I was speaking to a lady I know who is still wearing the masks. She said she likes to sneak in the shop without being recognised. <laughs> when the lockdown started, she said it was exciting. What are you going to do, Sue? What are you going to do? It occurred to me. It occurred to me. Today was lovely. And, you know, I, I won't bore you with the running, but I do the running thing. And I do see quite a lot of people wearing the masks. Now, if I'm to be honest, maybe a little less so, maybe not as many as a few weeks back. But there are still some young people and some not so young people wearing them. And it occurs to me, how many jabs will you need to have? And how many times will you need to have COVID? I say that because I subscribe to the Times newspaper for the programme, right? For this programme, I need to be able to read the the broadsheets. And like most newspapers, under the articles, if you're reading them online, you can leave a comment if you like. And I saw a comment from a woman. I wish I'd copied and pasted it. She was giving out about Johnson and Sajid Javid, the health secretary, and she was saying it's too early to relax all these restrictions. And pressed by another reader to explain why she felt it was too early. She said, well, I'm triple jabbed. I had COVID twice and I've just gotten it again. That's astounding to me that people could think like that and never, never occurs to them, not even for a microsecond, scratch their head. Well, well, Jesus, maybe... Maybe these jabs are useless. Now, we, you and I, know they're a bit more than useless. 
By the way, I know masks are useless. I was just putting the point to Michael that not all, you know, good doctors believe masks are entirely useless. I believe they are, just in case you come back at me about that. It's my job, you know. Yeah, how many jabs will you need? How many times will you need to get COVID before you understand that you've been had? Uh, Chris says there's a thing today emerging, Richie, over procurement. Hancock exchanging, that's the former health secretary, Matt Hancock, exchanging emails with someone over supplying masks, etc. Uh, it was Labour MP Dawn Butler, was it, pursuing him over it. There was something. I saw something very late in the afternoon on the Telegraph. I'll try and dig it out. Uh, Faisal says it's funny. Tube trains have had no mask announcements for ages. I just heard the same old masks required announcements on Overland and some stations with masks recommended. What a hilarious mess, says Faisal. Hi to Red Green, thanks so much for the link. Kevin Duckworth says Rivero cannot use a preposition without prefixing it with on. Apart from that, he is a mental nano midget. Tell us what you really think, Kevin. Ask him about chemtrails, Richie. Come on, you're a journalist, aren't you? I am, Kevin. What are you? And who are you? Two things on that. I'm guessing that Michael Rivero, at one time or another, has expressed scepticism about the existence of chemtrails. And because he doesn't agree with you, Kevin, that makes him a mental nano-midget, does it? And as for asking him about chemtrails today, no. I invited him on to speak about Ukraine and one or two of the bigger stories in the news. Yes, I am a journalist, and by not asking him about chemtrails doesn't make me any less of a journalist. Kevin, go away. And stay away, Kevin. Thank you very much. Uh, you won't be blocked on my website. I'll read your comments out anyway. Dan says, Richie, you've only got to listen to Putin. He says, just go into Donbass, or just to go into Donbass wouldn't solve anything, as the people will still be attacked. The only way to stop it is to demilitarise and to denazify Putin's words. Yes, and we believe Vladimir Putin, do we, Daz? I don't. Now, that isn't to say that he might have been telling the truth, or might be telling the truth. He might be. I don't know. But I don't believe him. And I've said for, from the outset, I've said from the outset that I believe that Putin is in on it. Consciously or unconsciously. In on what? Well, this uh, unfolding Orwellian agenda we're bearing witness to. I, I can't see how we couldn't be at this stage. Just my opinion, though. The Richie Allen Show, Monday, it is, of course, the 21st of March, 2021. Lots more to come. Debbie Hayton will be on the programme around about 10, uh, 12 minutes time. You don't want to miss Debbie. We're going to be talking about Leah Stevens. I hope I've gotten that right. Leah Thomas. Just as when I double-checked, isn't it? Some journalist, eh? Leah Thomas, that's right. This is the national collegiate swimmer, the trans girl who's been winning race after race after race against biological girls. And it isn't going down too well. In fact, it's a big story over the last few days and today's. We'll talk about that. And we'll also talk with Debbie this news that there were 5,500 children on the waiting list for gender reassignment treatment at the NHS Tavistock 
clinic? What's going on there? What's really going on there? Do you know? I don't know. Uh, we'll try and find out with uh, Debbie Hayton a little bit later on. It's your Richie Allen Show. The time is at two minutes to the top of the hour. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Yeah, and keep those comments coming into my website, richieallen.co.uk. Big old week, busy week. Uh, Mark Windows will be on the programme this Wednesday for an extended conversation. I'll have David Curtin, the politician, tomorrow. Can't wait to speak to Mark and to David. There are other guests, but I don't have the diary to hand, which is my classic excuse, my staple excuse. Angela says, been off work for a couple of days with aches and was expecting to be told I had to stay away for 10 days or some such nonsense. I was told to come back when I'm feeling well. It feels like the old days, almost, when common sense was a thing. Yes, Angela. Although I did see the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, on BBC Breakfast this morning, Sally Nugent, interviewed him and asked him, would he remain at home if he tested positive for COVID? And he said he would. But apparently we're moving into an era now, we're moving in to a, to a, to a space where people are being given personal responsibility, apparently. Alex reckons they're gearing up for a new round of COVID. Apparently there's a hospital in Cornwall or Devon that's shut to non-COVID patients because they're at breaking point, alleges Alex. New propaganda photos coming out, to, coming out of China and rumblings of cases going up here as well. Vicky says, it seems that some doctors, no matter how learned and intelligent they may be, are easily gaslighted too. Maybe. That may be true. John says, it's my birthday today, Richie. I'm 43. Here's to another 43. Happy birthday, John. You are 43. So is Nazanin Zagari Ratliff. 43. Yes. So she is. I don't know. Why did I mention that? Colin says, Richie, Leo the Leak is already pushing the fourth jab in Ireland. That's the Tornishta, Leo Varadkar. Mm. Wow. Amazing, eh? Fourth jab. Well, they've done that here. They've said four jabs here, haven't they? They're, they're just about to offer the fourth jab to the so-called very vulnerable and over 75s. And Javid did say a few days ago, did he not, that they will be offering a fifth jab in the autumn? Why not, sure? And they'll still wear the masks in the winter. They'll still socially distance and all of that nonsense. Scaramouche says the bankers decide who wins war. And they will choose Russia and China. The West is over, says Scaramouche. If it's up there, in the immortal words of Les Dennis, I'll give you the money myself, Scaramouche. Nobody will be winning any wars, I don't think. I just think there will be wars. I think my pal Gerald's and your pal, uh, Gerald Salente, has got it bang on. Wars, proxy wars, drone wars, but nobody will win them, you know. Wars will, will never be fought the way wars used to be fought. We won't see that ever again. What we saw in... In, um, in the 1930s and 40s, what we saw in Korea, what we saw in Vietnam, what we saw everywhere else that I've not mentioned. I don't think we'll ever see anything like that ever again. 
poisonally. Poisonally. It's time for a tune. Here's Billy Joel and tell her about it on your Richie Allen Show. Your Richie Allen Show. Live from Salford Monday's programme. More comments when we return. Listen, boy, I don't want to see you won't go wrong. You got to tell her about it. it Billy Joel and tell her about it. I didn't mention that disgusting P and O ferry story in the monologue. Um, ran out of time, really. It's a terrible thing. You, you'll know the story. Last week, uh, Friday, Thursday, wasn't it? It was Thursday. Wednesday or Thursday. It was a dreadful thing. People working for P&O ferries, people on board P&O ferries, actual ferries, were shown a video where a man told them to basically get their bags and their coats and get out that they were fired. Shock and stuff, really. And to make matters worse, they had coaches on standby full of workers from different parts of Europe who were prepared to take the jobs of the fired employees for as little as one pound and 80 pence an hour. It's disgusting. I mean, it really is. And, you know, I'm, I'll always be a trade unionist. I'm no longer in a union. I was in the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists, for a long, long time. But I'm not anymore. But I love unions. I am a trade unionist. I am an old Bolivarian socialist. I believe in it. To my bone marrow, I really do. In collective bargaining, in the workers. You know... Um, in ultimately in um, workers standing up for the rights of not only their own colleagues but workers everywhere else around the world or around the country. Anyway, this is disgusting. I don't know, the UK government can't really do anything about it but here is the Shadow Transport Secretary, a woman called Louise Haig, um, speaking in uh, the House of Commons today about this story... Uh, here's Haig. There was an urgent question. I know the Transport Minister uh, spoke. We might hear from him in a moment. Mr Speaker, I know that the whole House agrees that the action taken by P&O Ferries was a national scandal. 800 British workers sacked with no notice. Today, we've learnt that they've been replaced with people earning just £1.80 an hour. This was nothing short of a betrayal of the workers who protected this country's supply chain during the pandemic. The personal cost to those workers has been profound. Some of them have joined us in the gallery today. And it is with those workers that we should begin. Mr Speaker, on Friday, like many colleagues, I stood side by side with sacked crew in Dover. There, I spoke to a married couple who had both been employees of P&O ferries for 14 years. They loved their jobs. They spoke movingly about how P&O felt like a family. It sounds cliché, she said to me, but it really was. We lived together, ate together, worked in a small space together. It was our life and we gave it our all. Louise Haig, the Shadow Transport Secretary, speaking a little bit earlier on today. Rotten, wretched thing. I had an email from someone over the weekend whose husband is affected by it, and um, it couldn't be... There isn't a worse time. Can you imagine a time worse than now to be out of work with the cost of living spiralling, out of control? There, there, There is talk, isn't there, or there has been talk, that the price of a litre of petrol might even reach £2. 
um, by the end of this week, we're, on, we're Monday now, aren't we? We're Monday. It's at nine minutes past the hour. Parish, the thought, not that I drive very far anyway. I don't. I mean, I work here. I work pretty much all the blooming time. I know you probably do too. There isn't much driving going on. In fact, Saturday, we went to Horton Dale. I mentioned this yesterday in the in Thameside Nature Preserve. That's the one in Thameside. And that's about the longest journey I've taken in the car for a long, long time. I suppose I'd better get used to it. I saw this on the BBC. I found it very interesting. I wrote about it on my website. Your thoughts would be interesting. Dumb phones. I have to be, be being absolutely honest. Today is the first time I heard the term dumb phone. <laughs> it really is. A dumb phone is an old phone. It's a phone that predates smartphones. A phone that you made a phone call on or you texted somebody. Didn't even have a camera. A dumb phone. I think that's the proper definition. Didn't have a camera, just you could do the basics. Apparently they're making a bit of a comeback. And some of, you know, Nokia's or Nokia, Nokia's models are selling like hot cakes, no pun intended. No, excuse me, no cliche intended. In fact, I did my own little bit of research today and I went to a couple of big online retailers and saw, yeah, they are very popular, these old school telephones. And there was a nice... There was a nice, there was a nice um, comment, or a couple of nice comments made to the BBC by a young man and a young woman who had uh, smartphones had taken over their lives. They admitted they were addicted to using smartphones. And speaking to the BBC, both of these people, one of them in Eastern Europe, one of them in the UK, said that their lives were unrecognisable, having ditched the smartphone for the dumb phone more energy, happier, much more positive about things, getting more things done, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I just thought that was very interesting. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not somebody who checks my smartphone frequently. I do not. But, but in the job I'm in, I do need it. It's nice to have a pocket-sized, almost like laptop, on the road, if you know what I mean. But I could see how, if I wasn't doing this job... I'd never have a smartphone. I wouldn't have um, a smartphone at all. But apparently there are a billion pounds worth of these uh, dumb phones have been sold in the last year. And I was thinking about uh, youngsters who want phones, you know, who want to have phones and parents who want to give phones to their youngsters for security reasons, for personal protection, not personal protection, but for peace of mind reasons. Got a youngster going to school, listen, have that. If you ever get in a jam, if you need me, I'm on speed dial, give me a call. And I think, or thought even, that this is um, a bloody good compromise, isn't it? <laughs> Although I'm not sure too many youngsters going to school would see it as a compromise. I'm sure they'd ca cause bloody murder not getting the smartphone. It's an interesting one anyway. Uh, RichieAllen.co.uk That's on there. Um, and another story I wanted to get into today, but I didn't have time. And I didn't have time to get a contact on to speak about it. But we've speculated about the COVID inquiry. So the COVID inquiry was set up to look at the pandemic and how the, the scamdemic, how the government has handled it, what it did well, what it didn't do well. Now, you and I are sceptics, so you and I believe it'll be a whitewash. But it's not just us who believe 
that it will be a whitewash. The chairwoman of the Commission on Young Lives, Anne Longfield, who's also the former Children's Commissioner for England, she has said that children are being airbrushed by the inquiry, airbrushed out of memory with it. She's apoplectic. She is angry as hell that in the terms of reference, every inquiry has a published set of terms of reference. Terms of reference means what they're going to be looking into specifically. And Anne Longfield said it's absolutely outrageous that they're not looking at how the measures taken by the government have negatively impacted on children, on their education, on their physical and mental health. I've written about it on richieallen.co.uk. It's a very big issue. I'd like to get into it, but I didn't have time to get into it today. Maybe we'll get into it on the programme tomorrow. It's time for some BB King. When we return, I'll be with Debbie Hayton. You don't want to miss that. The time, 14 minutes past six on your Richie Allen Show. Once upon a time, turn me upside down. That is B.B. King and Ain't Nobody Home on the Richie Allen Show. The time is 16 minutes past six o'clock. Just before we welcome Debbie back to the programme again, I'm looking forward to hearing from Debbie. Let me read you this from the BBC. An angry rival of Leah Thomas has accused the National Collegiate Athletic Association of robbing her of a final spot at its swimming championships after missing out by one place. Reika Georgi wrote an open letter to the NCAA in which she also claimed its decision to allow transgender athletes to compete against biological women had deprived others of the chance to race. The 25-year-old spoke out three days after finishing 17th in the preliminaries for the women's 500-yard freestyle one place outside a qualifying spot for the consolation final for those who set the 9th to 16th fastest times. And this has been a huge issue, not just this weekend, but for, for many weeks. I'm delighted to welcome back to the show um, someone who's not been on for about a year. It's been uh, ages. Uh, she's a physics teacher, a trade unionist and journalist. Um, and she says on her Twitter handle that she's a transsexual. Uh, read her at muckrack.com forward slash Debbie Hayton. That is muckrack.com forward slash Debbie Hayton. Debbie, pleasure to welcome you back on. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Richie. And thanks. I know you're busy with the physics teaching and everything, so it's kind of you to uh, to give us your time today. This um, this gets more and more. Uh, I'm looking for. I'm searching for a word here. It's getting more and more nasty. This as 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 time comes on, as time goes on, is it me or am I right? Is it getting more and more nasty? And you know how how useful you know you know is that to kind of solve in this? What 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 seems to me to be a very complicated issue, Debbie. It's definitely getting more nasty as people are more concerned about defending their own rights. Different people have got different concerns, but people are not talking to each other because people fear losing rights rather than looking to uh, looking for uh, looking to actually uh, protect their protect their rights. It's all it's, it's all very much based on fear. But in the in the present situation where rights are being uh, are being based on things that are not actually true, it's not surprising that there's a lot of fear about. 
There is a lot of fear, yeah, and there's an awful lot of anger and you only need to look at Twitter or, or Facebook and, and then you have a situation where people are calling for the deplatforming of people or even calling for people to lose their jobs, livelihoods because of their opinion uh, on this. It, it, it's unlikely we're going to get any resolution to it, Debbie, anytime soon, right? Well, the way that we're going, we won't uh, because there's two, very, there's two competing ideas one view is that uh, our bodies are male and female, and that is the big distinction between uh, men and women. And that is the uh, situation that, uh, you know, Rika, the swimmer, would actually claim that she has a female body, so she would expect to be competing against females. That's one worldview. And the other worldview is that we can choose to be a man or a woman depending on how we feel about ourselves. Uh, and those two, those two worldviews are incompatible. Either we are our bodies, we are... Uh, you know, we are our biology, or we're, uh, we, we sort of might exist in these bodies, but uh, really what matters is how we feel about ourselves. And those two, those two worldviews are not compatible. And from what I understand from reading you, you'd like to see sport, biological females compete only against biological females and then have an open category, is that right? Yeah, I think that makes sense because people say they want to be inclusive, but what what could be more inclusive than an open category? Now, which, which anybody can compete in. Now, it might well be that there's some sports such as rugby and boxing where it would be uh, it would be inappropriate. But in swimming, which is a non-contact sport, then let's just have a, a, a class where anybody can compete: men, women, trans women, trans men. Anybody can compete in that category. Uh, what could be more inclusive than that? But the problem, as we know, is that women aren't going to win very much in that category. So we must protect another category for, for women, uh, biological females, whatever terminology you want to use, where it's closed to women so that they have the opportunity to compete against their own sex and to win against their own sex. The thing is, trying to have this discussion reasonably and rationally and calmly, Debbie, which you've already said is very difficult. And it, it isn't helped by the Republican Party, I suppose, coming out very strongly on the side of, of Reka, the biologically female swimmer. Now look, my sympathies would be with the biological female, biologically female swimmer. I have to put my hands up. I would agree with you. But it doesn't help. It just gets more and more and more protracted and angry and it makes it even less likely that people would sit down and say, right, let's just talk this out sensibly. Yeah, and you've, you've alluded there to American politics, which yeah. is very different to, to British politics. Uh, in American politics, this, this almost divides amongst Republican-Democrat lines, whereas in the UK, it's more nuanced. So there are people on both sides of politics in the UK who have, who have different opinions. So the, uh, the people in the UK who I think are... Uh, campaigning for common sense, for rights to be based upon objective truth, which is what you would say the, uh, the biological females ca campaigning for their rights as biological females. There are people on both sides of politics pushing those arguments forward. And that makes the UK a very different place in this to the, to, uh, the United States. I'm not sure how, how many Americans actually appreciate that, that we are, we are quite different. And the debate here has taken on quite a different tone because of that. Now, you say that, right? Uh, by the way, folks, it's Debbie Hayton. Debbie's a physics teacher, transsexual woman, physics teacher, trade unionist and journalist. Mockrack.com forward slash Debbie Hayton, which is spelled H-A-Y-T. 
N, really important stuff this, I think. You say it's a bit nuanced and a bit different here. Look, you're obviously right. It's not as, it's not as crazy as it is in the United States. But um, I wanted to get your opinion on two very senior Labour frontbenchers, shadow ministers, Yvette Cooper and Annalise Dodds, tying themselves up in knots on two different BBC radio programmes when asked to define women. To me, and maybe I'm exaggerating, and tell me if I am exaggerating, but they almost seem terrified of what might happen if they said the wrong thing. That's not good either. How have we got to this point? Well, they appear terrified of the truth. I cannot believe that Annalise Dodds and Yvette Cooper do not know what a woman is. I, I, can't, I, I, I can't believe that they don't know. But they're terrified to uh, explain the truth of what a woman is because they're frightened of upsetting people, that people would be offended, perhaps upset by this, because we're coming back to what I said before. A woman is an adult human female. It's based upon uh, that, the woman's biology, not based upon feelings. But to actually, to actually say that then risks offending or upsetting trans women who would like to think that they're, they're women, but we're not really. You know, and we know we're not really if we think about it. But the problem comes is that uh, we're, not, we're, not, uh, we're not encouraged to think. We're, we're just encouraged to follow this line. And, and almost really to be saying that uh, the, prime, you know, the, the, the prime directive here is, is not to upset people. And uh, you can't do politics on not upsetting people. You have to do the right thing. And sometimes doing the right thing does mean upsetting people. Could you, as a trade unionist now, I don't have to, you know, your politics is none of my business, but you are a trade unionist. So I know that back in the day, you certainly would have had, your sympathies would have been with Labour Party politicians. I'm certain of that. Is that an issue? that the Conservatives could give the Labour Party a bit of a hiding with in the next general election, do you think? Well, if you look at the Labour Party politicians, there is, uh, Rosie Duffield is perhaps one of the most outspoken people on yeah. this. Uh, now, Rosie Duffield has said nothing which is transphobic at all. She supports trans people. She supports our right to live our lives in peace. Uh, but she also uh, explains that she, she knows what a woman is and she's campaigned for the rights of women. And the treatment which she's received has just been appalling. She's not the only one in the Labour Party. There are other, there are other Labour politicians as well who, uh, who speak good sense on this. But uh, they, there are more who are frightened to open their mouths because of the, uh, the treatment which uh, Rosie, Rosie Duffield has suffered. Now, you, you look back, you look forward to the next election, it's going to be, quite, it's going to be very difficult for Labour politicians because... Whatever they're going to sit down in a, t whatever they're going to uh, talk about to the journalists in the TV studio and the radio studio, the question is going to come: What's a woman? Yeah. And uh, it's not going to be too impressive if they can't answer the question. No, and you think you know, with with female voters, that's going to be a big problem for them. There's no, there's no doubt about that. You, you said, you know, there a few minutes ago that what, what you want and what, you know, many of the, 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 the trans people that you know, trans men and trans women, is just, you know, to be kind of treated with, with respect. I'm a 47-year-old Irish guy and where I grew up in Ireland, we didn't, I didn't meet very many trans people. I had to come to the UK before I met um, a trans woman. And, um, and that was some years ago. And this wasn't a thing then. 
that you know this whole issue wasn't a thing. And I remember speaking with um, uh, the trans woman at a was at a do in Manchester City Centre, in fact, and feeling a bit sympathetic. Not that my sympathy was was wanted or needed, but just you know, kind of thinking, you know, there but for the grace of God go you know, kind of go I and, you know, I, I remember thinking, I hope that person is, as you, I think you said, left alone, you know, to get on with their lives. Do we have a problem, Debbie? Because there will be trans people, I'm certain of it, listening to this programme. They won't agree with you. And they'll say that transphobia is a real thing. You know, that we do have people who, it, it's not just that they don't agree that a man can be a woman. They want to make life pretty difficult and pretty unpleasant for, for trans people. How much of that do we have in, in, the, in the UK today, do you think? Well, well, there are objectionable people around who want to make life difficult for anybody who they don't like the look of or yeah. uh, they, they see as different. I don't think trans people are in a particularly difficult position. The, the same people who will dislike gay people for being gay, dislike uh, women for being women, dislike trans people for being trans, it tends to come from the same, uh, the same people. Now, that aside, those people aside, there is, there is very little transphobia around in my life that affects me. I get on in my life in relative peace, Richie. Yeah. And uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I don't feel that everybody, any, everybody or anybody is out to get me. Uh, as with anybody else, there'll be situations around when you think this is a bit of a dangerous situation and I'll, I'll give it a wide berth. But that doesn't happen very often. I'll tell you and, what, Debbie. Uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I'll tell you what, you're, you're touching on something there that we've covered on this programme quite a bit. The labelling of people as vulnerable and how negative that can be for the group who is assigned vulnerable status. And I spoke to a gay gentleman on this programme some years ago about gay bashing. And he said to you, he's just like yourself, he said, I've never seen much of that. It obviously went on in the 70s and 80s. Of course it did. It was horrendous. And I'm sure trans people suffered attacks and, 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 and nonsense as well in the 70s and 80s. But he said, Richie, this, you know, labelling of vulnerable, it's kind of a way of taking control of you. And it doesn't do any good whatsoever. And as a teacher, I'd be fascinated to get your take on, on that, Debbie. Is it a dangerous thing to tell people they are vulnerable and they need protection all the time? Well, it's disempowering itself. If you, if you tell somebody that they are vulnerable, it disempowers them. Uh, I don't feel particularly vulnerable at all. And uh, I have, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I get on well with my life. I don't feel that uh, people are out to get me and uh, I don't expect to, to see that. And I don't come across it. It's uh, it's not a great way to live to be thinking that uh, everybody's out to get you. It really isn't. No, Debbie Hayton is our guest. We've got Debbie for another twelve minutes, fifteen minutes if we're lucky, because this is really important. I, I, I want to ask you this, and you know, I went over in my head 15 or 20 times, Debbie, how could I ask this properly, this question, without sounding like an idiot? So I'm going, I'm going to try my absolute best, right? Um, you're a transsexual woman. What do you put that down to? Why you, Debbie? Why, why not me? Why did you have issues around your gender identity when, when you were younger? What do you, what do you ascribe that to? What, what happened? It's a difference in psychology. Human beings are different. We're not all the same. Uh, we, we're, we've, we represent all sorts of different psychologies in how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to each other. Uh, when we look at how men and women present themselves and how they express themselves, men and women do tend to uh, t 
to uh, present themselves differently. I think uh, that's uh, that, that's self-evident. And in the case of is me, I prefer to present myself in the way that women tend to present themselves. Yeah. And, and I keep saying tend to. So it's a it's a it's a psychological difference. Yeah. Now it's uh, it's very difficult in our society for uh, for men to express themselves in the same way as women. It's more it's, it's easier the other way around. I think though I can't I can't speak for women for goodness sake, but I've always been under the impression that for a for a woman who wore who always wore trousers, cut her hair short, expressed herself in the same way as a man. She would perhaps raise eyebrows at times in certain communities, but tend to get on with life. A man who uh, uh, who says, "Yes, I'm a man, but I, I want to express myself in the same way as a woman," that's more tricky, you know. As men don't men don't really know what to do with that, yeah, yeah. Uh, especially, and uh, it's it's really quite difficult. And uh, it's easier for any male transsexual, such as myself, to say, "Look." It's easier to say, look, I'm really a woman, which is why, I, you know, I want to present in the same way as a woman. So, let's say I'm I'm really a woman, and and take it from there. And it's a, it's a much easier way to live. But it's not it's not the truth. The truth is that we're uh, we're male people who just prefer to uh, to present in the same way as females. It's far more and, nuanced. Uh, there than... shouldn't be a problem with that. No, it's far more nuanced than you know the right wing press. Will 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 kind of tell people. You see, I hear gender dysphoria thrown about quite a bit, or body dysmorphia. But you describing your own experience there, and thanks for doing that, by the way. That doesn't sound like gender dysphoria. That sounds like simply I am more comfortable presenting myself this way. Yeah, but when you when you're not when you feel you want to do this, but it's not allowed to do it, that's that can cause huge right. psychological distress to be feeling that the, the way you are desperate to express yourself, to express who you are to everybody else, not to be able to do that is really distressing. And that's what we call gender, gender right. dysphoria. Yeah, it you, really yeah. is, in some ways, gender dysphoria is a, it's an artificial diagnosis uh, that was created, really, because if there's treatment available, and there is, uh, med- medics require a diagnosis in order to access that treatment. So gender dysphoria was uh, was invented for that. But really behind there, there is this compulsion to do this thing, to transition, as we call it, to uh, express yourself in the same way as the other sex, change your body even to resemble the other sex. Uh, that, that compulsion there, if that compulsion is denied or blocked, it can cause huge psychological distress. And that's what we call gender dysphoria. Thanks for the education. Uh, sincerely, thanks for that. I had a, a transsexual woman, Diane, on the programme from Wales, but lives in Ireland a couple of years ago, and um, was brilliant in explaining you know, her own experience of, of going through it. Um, this is important stuff. I really believe this. I wanted to ask you this. I mentioned this when we, we swapped um, messages today. This Tavistock Centre, NHS, which is the only clinic in the country for children who are interested in gender change treatment, they reckon five and a half thousand children are on the waiting list. And this segues into another issue I asked you to comment on today, which is, you know, the impact of lockdowns on children's well-being, mental health, so on, so on. Um, five and a half thousand on the waiting list. I, I, I'll tell you what I found strange about that. 
because I, I read, I'm, I'm sure you do as well, I read all the broadsheets. So I'm reading the Times, the Telegraph, and I understood that this uh, clinic, which is known as GIDS, um, isn't it? It's known as GIDS, that's right, yeah, um, has been criticised by the Care Quality Commission for not giving children, you know, quality care and for pushing them into gender reassignment treatments. What, what are your thoughts on that? Five and a half thousand. That sounds an enormous amount, Debbie. It is a huge number and it's far, far more than that uh, that trust can actually cope with. It was designed for, uh, originally designed for dozens of patients and they're now getting thousands. It's a hundred times more than they can than they were designed for and far more than they can cope with. But it's the messages that we're giving to children. Uh, I can't, I, before I talked about the two worldviews, we are our bodies, we're either male or female according to our bodies. Uh, the other worldview is that we're male or female according to our feelings. Now, that is nonsense, but that's what children are hearing and children are believing that. So children are believing that they can grow up to be a man or a woman depending on, 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 on their preference. And to children growing up, knowing that puberty is coming and seeing puberty happen to them, the distress that it's causing when they've been, when it's been suggested to them that they can choose to grow up to be a man or a woman, if only they can get to the Tavistock Clinic, where the Tavistock Clinic has got treatments to support that, then it's not, it's just totally unhelpful, Richie. You know, children need to be told the truth, that they're either boys or girls according to their biology. And... Rather than saying that they can change their sex, which they can't, we should be teaching children that they are, if they're a girl, they don't need to be restricted to uh, feminine uh, yeah. behaviours, feminine uh, pre presentations. And the same for boys. Boys don't have to be uh, masculine or male typical behaviours. We should be t telling children that they can be themselves in their bodies rather than putting them on a wait list for treatment that's probably never going to happen uh, with the promise that if they ever they got to the Tavistock, the Tavistock would be able to change their bodies. And the Tavistock can't. We can't change our bodies to be the other sex. Why are children hearing? See, this is the $64 million question. I'm, I gave up some years ago believing in mistakes. No, look, I shouldn't say that because nothing is black and white for me. I am reasonably clever enough to know that there are shades of grey, there are contexts, there are nuances, as you said earlier. But but I suspect that there's something a bit more sinister going on here with respect to asking very young children to, to cope with information of a very, you, you know, very complicated stuff. And I, I can't believe that it's just bad policy or just a mistake. I'm wondering, is there something else going on? Do you wonder that sometimes yourself? Well, I think there is. Uh, ch children, children yearn to be uh, something. You know, children have got dreams, and children are, uh, and children, uh, you know, have got ambitions. Not all of which can be realised. What I do worry is very young children who are who are referred to the Tavistock. Some 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 of the youngest children are three and four years old, uh, and you think, how can children that age know anything about this? How can they even find the words to express this? And uh, one of the uh, concerns which has come out of the Tavistock, our clinicians there are concerned that uh, parents are worried about their presentation of their sons. Their sons are feminine in behaviour. Perhaps parents worry that their sons may grow up to be homosexual. And uh, in preference to having a, a feminine son or a, or a gay son, 
would prefer to have a daughter. Right. And this is, and vice versa. And that's something I worry is going on. So what we're seeing is that we're seeing the fears of some parents uh, being in, impacting on their children. Whereas uh, there should be nothing wrong with being a feminine man or a nothing. masculine woman. Those should, be, those should be seen as normal. Amen. I totally agree with that. You didn't dodge the question, but you didn't quite answer it either. How it's come to teachers discussing these things with children. I don't like that. And I don't think it's just a bad idea. I think there's some other influence there that wants to kind of mess around with the minds of children. I'm in the realms now of, of conspiracy theories, but but fair enough, that's what I was getting at. Like, why? Who could possibly think, Debbie, that it's a good idea to get young children thinking about these things when when it's obvious to most right-minded people, just leave children be who they are. If the girl in the class is inclined to want to wear trousers and she likes to uh, play, you know, games that we might have traditionally described as male, let them off, leave them be, let them do whatever they bloody want. They'll figure it out in adolescence anyway. That's the point I was trying to make. Why are they going at children like this? I don't think there's a huge conspiracy. I don't think there is a... I don't think we're in a land of James Bond where there is a Mr. Big uh, right. controlling all this. I, I really I really don't. I just think we're seeing uh, normal human behaviour. It's, it's human behaviour in wanting to have complete control over our lives and our bodies. We don't have that. You know, we... we uh, we would like we would like to have control over our lives so that we uh, we see our bodies as uh, as like you know devices to move us around the face of the planet. But that's not that's not the case. We are we are subject to our bodies. The chemicals which our bodies produce uh, affect our mental health. You know, the the fitness of our body depend, determines so much on what we can do. So what I think we're seeing here we're seeing a yearning to be somewhat greater than biology, greater than our bodies above all this. Uh, and this idea about being separating from our sex bodies is part of that. So I just think it's human nature in wanting to separate ourselves from this uh, material reality, this, uh, you know, this, you know, the, our animal nature in, in, in some ways, and, and wanting to do that. The impact on children, though, who pick this up and say, this means I can be anything I want. Uh, what what's where we're going wrong is as adults, our job is to uh, is to be really realistic with children to say, yes, I know you want to be an astronaut, but it's going to be rather unlikely. How about <laughs> being a teacher instead? And that's that's what that's what I was told uh, 40 years ago. Fantastic. You know, you're never going to be an astronaut. So how about and it wasn't a teacher at the time, but how about being a teacher? And you went, you uh, went but into what, physics. We're, what we're saying, yeah, what we're saying to children is uh, you can be what, what you, whatever you like. And children are believing this. And I think we need to be more realistic with children and be honest with children. And even if it means disappointing them at times, that's what we need to do as adults. That's our responsibility as adults. And too many adults are, are ducking that responsibility. Debbie, final question. Thanks for your time today. Anne Longfield, the former Children's Commissioner, is very annoyed at the terms of reference set out for the COVID inquiry, at the lack of the mention of the word child or children. Now, she's one of many fairly learned people who believe that the COVID inquiry should be very concerned about the impact of lockdowns on children, on their health physically, but also mentally. Now, as a teacher yourself, how do you 
respond to that? Does Anne Longfield have a, have a point? The, the impact on children has been absolutely massive. Two whole academic years were uh, were uh, high were, were were disrupted significantly in ways that we could never have imagined. Uh, children were kept off school for almost two complete terms, away from their friends, away from away from uh, other human contact as such, apart from uh, the internet. Oh, they had they had access to the internet. Uh, so I think we need to uh, really look into. Uh, what the what that has actually done for children, children who had more contact with influences on YouTube and TikTok than they did with their teachers and their peer group, that has had a huge impact on children, and it's one that we're not talking about and we're not uh, recognising, and we need to actually look at that. And perhaps when we are thinking about children's mental health, because it, there is a, a problem with children's mental health, is looking at what the impact of these, uh, as the COVID restrictions have been on children. Children have paid a very heavy price over the last two years. Debbie, great to have you back on a year after you first came on. Lovely to hear from you today. Thanks for your time and uh, I hope we'll speak again soon. Thank you. You're very welcome, Richie. Thank you. Bye for now. Debbie Hayton there, a transsexual woman. Debbie is more than that, of course. She's a teacher, a physicist, a trade unionist and a journalist. And you can read her at muckrack.com forward slash Debbie Hayton. You'll find her on Twitter as well. There's only one Debbie Hayton, H-A-Y-T-O-N. Thanks again uh, to her for coming on the programme today. The time is exactly 16 minutes to 7 o'clock. Thanks for your comments. They are legion. Like that word, legion. Yeah, I've used it before. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, big, cliched monster. Yeah. I can be sometimes. I'm well aware of it. I, I smack myself when I listen back. Lucy says, I disagree with Debbie regarding the reasons why we are seeing more children being referred to the Tavistock uh, clinic. Susie says, me too, it is totally prevalent, more than ever before, and it's obviously a satanic agenda, says Susie. Well, I did ask. I did say, look, I think it's about something a bit more, but um, she doesn't see it that way. She doesn't see it that way. Kevin came back on, Kevin Duckworth. He says, if I identify as some type of invalid, such as a paraplegic, I could win gold after gold in the Olympics. And that is crass, but, but... It's accurate. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. I read it. Kevin is right. I saw a story. I came across a story on the Mail Online today. If you look it up online, if you use a search engine, with with the key words, Australian school children identifying as furry animals. This is no joke. I wish I'd saved the link to the story so I could read it for you now. (laughs) But apparently, yes, at some private school or public school, a private school, I think, in Australia, they've noticed a phenomenon where some of the children are identifying as animals. For real. It isn't April. It isn't April 1st. Not yet. Make of that what you will. Busy says there's a new superhero. (laughs) This is a good guy. There's a new superhero. Uh, coming out, DC Comics are bringing out the new superhero. It's first ever transgender character. Drumroll. Wonder if it's a woman. Boom, boom, boom. Christopher says, I think trans athletes can be included. Just add a parallel category with extra steps on the podium and two sets of medals. 
Jack says, of course, it's a Tavistock clinic. Yes. Yeah. Tavistock A. We've heard that Tavistock has come up so many times over the years. Faisal says, I'm impressed with Debbie's honesty in explaining her situation and her insight in general. Thanks. And Sarah Plumley, speaking of teachers, Sarah's in France. Fantastic conversation on this programme uh, a year and a half ago or two years. Must get Sarah back on. Said that before. Sarah, I'll be in touch. I'll drop you a Skype message. Um, Sarah read an excellent book on transits. But you might remember, very accomplished lady Sarah herself. Top class referee. Footy referee, yeah, and player. I read an excellent book on trans and sport, she says, and has given us the link. It's on Comment Live on the Richie Allen Show. Scroll down, you'll see Sarah Plumley's comment. Unsporting, how trans activism and science denial are destroying sport. It was written by two women, a journalist and a former Canadian champion athlete. It lays out the arguments really well, explains the issues and offers the solution. Says Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, Patricia, my pal in Zurich, says Richie is a former competitive diver uh, and swimmer. I can positively say there is no comparison to the muscle mass and strength between men and women in these competitions. Yes, a trans woman will win in competitions with biological women. But is it fair? Can we all just get real about this? Whatever we wish or want to be in our minds doesn't change who we are in our bodies. Excellent stuff. Yeah. I mean, I saw over the last couple of years, over the last couple of years, I've seen, you've seen them as well, these crazy videos. Remember that trans girl or trans woman in high school, the sprinter, African-American trans woman. Remember? And uh, was just blowing away the biological females in the sprint races in the 100 and 200 metres. It's just absolute vaudeville. You know, it's a man. As Debbie said, you know, we know we're males. Yeah. There was a time when you might know a trans person. So you might know a trans woman. You might know a transsexual woman, someone who's had surgery. Or you might know a transvestite. A guy who likes to dress up in women's clothing. Now they might have had the, they might have had it very, very tough. Like I said back in the day, I did a really interesting interview some years ago with uh, the human rights campaigner Peter Tacho, who a number of my listeners won't like, uh, for 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 reasons. Why don't they like Peter? Or oh, because they think that Peter um, wanted to lower the age of consent when it was far more complicated than that, what he was actually saying. He said he was stitched up, Peter, by The Guardian in particular, and he wasn't saying that we should lower the age of consent at all. He was saying we shouldn't um, prosecute people, not not paedophiles, uh, but we shouldn't prosecute um, young people for having sex. Ah, look, I'm leaving it there. Look it up online. Anyway, I spoke with Peter Tatchell years ago about the experiences of gay men and women in the 70s and 80s particularly. And uh, I I know some gay men who are older than I um, and uh, they took some shit back in the day. There's no doubt about that. They had to put up with it. But that changed over the years. And by and large, like, like Debbie Hayton said, you don't see 
anger towards gay people. Now you might say, well, you're not gay, so how would you know? But it just doesn't go on the way it used to go on. It's not a thing. And uh, even a few years ago, I mean, this whole trans thing, even a few years ago, you would see a trans woman. In my case, I met a trans woman at a do in in Manchester at the Fab Cafe. And um, the whole thing was respect, really. You just respect people. You know, that's who you are, that's who you are. But there was no, there were no demands. There were no demands then. You know, you must refer to me as she or female. It was none of that nonsense. Just respect, you know. What's your name? Well, I'm, I call myself Claire. Well, fair enough, Claire. Happy days. It's not going to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. Where was I? Yeah. Uh, Richard says, I grew up in a town that had a trans person. He or she was slagged one day by a guy and she said to him, I'm more man than you'll ever be. <laughs> and more woman than you'll ever have, says Richard. Thank you, Richard. Jack says, I would wager that most people, most trans people would think similarly, similarly to Debbie, but the agenda will never accept that perspective because it isn't very divide and rule, is it? Good point. Uh, James says, if only Jesus was here, what would the Almighty think about this? It's shameful and it's unnatural, says James. Well, maybe it isn't, James. Maybe it isn't unnatural. We might be spiritual beings. We are, I think. I'm coming around to thinking like that. Having an experience in this physical body. But this physical body is all biology. It's all bone and blood and muscle and sinew and synapses and and nerve endings and brains so it's not totally unnatural that some people will at some stage in their lives be it their teens or their 20s um, feel more comfortable living as the opposite sex I don't think it's unnatural at all personally that's my personal opinion I'm going to get abuse now for bringing up Peter Tatchell a lot of people believe that what Peter Tatchell said many, 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 many moons ago, a lot of people believe that he was actively trying to lower the age of consent to make it easier for men to have sex with much younger men. I don't believe that's what he was trying to do personally, but I don't know ultimately because I don't know him personally. But I've had some interesting interviews with him over the years, uh, Peter Tatchell, on the subject of homophobia and transphobia and stuff like that. It says seven minutes to the top of the hour. I give you a heads up earlier. I'll do it again. Mark Windows of windowsontheworlds.net will be with me for an extended conversation this coming Wednesday. You do not want to miss it. Before that, among the guests, among tomorrow's guests, uh, the politician David Curtin. Love having him on. He was last on, I think, just before Christmas, or maybe just after, I can't remember. Uh, Diane, I mentioned Diane earlier on. Uh, she says, Debbie is spot on. Common sense must prevail. However, with all the insanity at the moment, COVID, Ukraine, etc., there is little chance of common sense. My fear, you see, is ultimately, is that if this isn't addressed properly, because you can call this culture wars if you want, Twitter wars, and you can say, well, ultimately, this doesn't really matter. It's distraction. Yes, on one level, it certainly is. But on another level, it isn't. Because I think eventually, 
and I've said this to friends of mine privately, I've said it to you on this programme, eventually I think people will be expected to make affirmations about things, declarations to participate in society. I really believe that. It sounds fanciful, it sounds impossible to some, but I think we, we will eventually get to a place where you won't be allowed, permitted even, to, to hold your water, which is a great Irish saying, which is, I'll keep my opinion to myself, thank you very much. No, in the future, I think you'll be expected to come down on a side. And depending on which side you come down on, you might work or you might not work. You might travel or you might not travel. How do you feel about this uh, issue there? Well, that's my business. No, it isn't. <laughs> As your employer, we reserve the right, it's in your contract, to know exactly what you think. And there might be some people then who will make a proclamation or an affirmation to something they completely disagree with to preserve their employment status. Yeah, I, I think we're, we will get there. Someday. And maybe that day isn't too far away. I shall take my leave of you now and say thanks for listening. Thank you to my two guests, the wonderful Michael Rivero, whatreallyhappened.com and the equally wonderful Debbie Hayton. Check Debbie's articles out online. It's muckrack.com forward slash Debbie, H-A-Y-T-O-N. And Debbie is spelled two B's, I-E. I'm sure you got that. Until tomorrow at five o'clock UK time, it's Hasta La Vista, baby, from the BBG. I don't think I've ever played this song on this programme, but I did play it on Sunday Morning Melodies a few months ago. It's a song called La Citiera. La Citiera. And it's by the amazing Mavericks. Until tomorrow, take care of yourselves and one another. Bye for me. Bye now.